0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The transcendent experience of street basketball is the topic of two conversations with Onaje Woodbine, the author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. Woodbine grew up in the inner city of Roxbury, Massachusetts, became a skilled basketball player, and attended Yale University on a basketball scholarship. After two years as a star player on the Yale team, he chose a different life path and quit the basketball team. After graduating from Yale, Woodbine earned his PhD in religious studies from Boston University. His book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, presents a social anthropological view of this inner city sport, where the coaches often assume the role of father, mentor, and friend. Woodbine contrasts the lessons he learned on the street basketball courts of Roxbury with those he learned at the predominantly white basketball courts and locker rooms of Yale University. Onajay Woodbine visited with Radio Curious by phone on August 13, 2016 from his home in Andover, Massachusetts, and began by describing his relationship with his father, Dr. Robert Woodbine.
1: My father and I really became close when I was 15 years old. For From about the age of 7 to 15, he wasn't really in my life, and... During that time, I had lost loved ones. Um, I had what I would call depression, um, a lot of fear, because I lived in between several gangs, and, you know, I I had sort of lost my connection with the world, in a sense. I I withdrew from the world, Um, and when my father entered my life at 15, he helped me navigate That inner terrain, he showed me um, that I had a purpose. He gave me some language for what I was experiencing. Um, He showed me how to meditate and to trust that still small voice within. And, you know, that gave me something that the streets, that the violence of the inner city, that the ghetto couldn't touch. You know, and and I realized at that point that I was a human being, you know, and I had something nobody could take away. Um, And so I took that to the basketball court, you know. It it had been there for me. That was really the only place I could feel safe in the inner city. And now I had language. Now I had practices. I could practice my breathing on the court when everything around me Chaotic, and so that relationship really planted the seed for what would become you know this project, Black Gods of the asphalt.
0: so how would you characterize your relationship with your father in comparison to your peers relationships with their fathers?
1: Most of my friends. Did not know their fathers. Um, our coaches were our, our fathers. You know, my coach Manny Wilson. Um, you know, I felt like he helped raise me. He was there for me when I needed him. He gave me an image of what a man should be. Um, he loved me. You know, and, and and I think most of my friends, the young men in the neighborhood, felt that way about Coach Manny. Um, but he passed away when I was twelve years old, and that sent me into a sort of spiral of depression, along with other things that were happening on in, in the inner city. Um, but I was lucky to reconnect with my father. I think most of my peers um, have never had that opportunity. and I think they feel an anger. Uh, towards their, their father or the absence of their father. I think they carry around that injury with them like, like I did, you know, until I was able to reconnect with my father. and um, It truly changed my life. I think if I hadn't had that experience, um, I think I would have had some sort of mental, emotional, serious issues. I, I, I think I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am now.
0: You talk about the search for male role models on the local basketball court. Your male role model is unique to you and and your father, different from your peers. Uh, It's the coaches who become the role model?
1: Yes. Um, You know, you spend the most time, you know, with any male in the neighborhood, Um, you spend time with your coach the most I mean, outside of that you know many of the schools in inner city Boston um, you know are not really staffed by by you know black men and at home you often find that you know black men are missing and so one of the few places that young black men have to experience guidance and support and encouragement from from older black men is in the gym or, you know, on the street basketball court. Um, you know, you also have it in the church, but, you know, a lot of these young men who are in the streets don't feel like the church is relevant. You know, they find that, you know, there's a generational gap and a gap in understanding, you know, about what, is being talked about on Sunday and what is actually happening in their lives on a day-to-day basis. And so the basketball court becomes this place where young men can dialogue and express what's happening in the streets um, with with other men, particularly older men. So it really is almost fitted perfectly um, for this kind of rite of passage between, you know, boys having an opportunity to become men in, in the inner city.
0: Can you describe that fit for us?
1: So, when you think about a street basketball court, it's open. The doors are always open. It's um, it's free, it's right there, it's accessible, right? It's right there um, in in the inner city. Uh, You don't need money to enter there, no doors, right? It's not an institution. Um, And the young men crowd around the space along with with older men. It's where everybody goes to converse, to talk about their stories, to share what what happened during their day. So the other the other fit here too is that it you know for young men who find it hard to express their emotions in the street because in the street you have to be tough you have to you know wear this mask of masculinity but in sports you can cry you can express emotion you know you can be vulnerable so not only is it accessible but it's acceptable for young men, African American men to express their feelings in this space. And it's one of the few places you can do that in such a tough environment. So for a number of reasons, um, it's almost like a perfect fit for this kind of work.
0: What is it that allows the perfect fit uh, beyond the openness and the camaraderie on the basketball team? And you characterize that in your book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, as uh, being different from being a member of a gang.
1: So what is really important that differentiates um, basketball from membership in the gang is this idea or really this experience that involves the body, the movement of the body. Um, In, In basketball, you have to let go of distraction. You have to put sort of your thoughts aside and enter your body and really experience and I think that's so important you know, to why the game allows these young men and gives them an escape from, you know, the everyday violence of the streets. You know, when you join a gang, you have to wear a mask. You can't show emotion or you'll become a target, you know. But in order to really play basketball well, you can't pretend. Right, you have to you have to be authentic. Uh, you have to let go and truly allow yourself the freedom and the vulnerability to enter into the space and experience and express yourself. And so, I think just like all art, sort of allows or promotes or encourages that process. Um, basketball does that for young men in the inner city. There's
0: a. Difference here that I'm hearing uh, what you're saying and and what I experienced in, in reading your book about the mask that is put on within the gang relationship of its own members and compared to other members which when you uh, have skill as as you do and and did as a basketball player allows you a free pass uh, among the territories of the gangs can you talk ab- that's very true can you talk about that difference
1: um, yeah so a lot of that has to do i think with the overall idea within the inner city that basketball players have hope, you know, or represent hope. You know, a lot of a lot of guys in the inner city believe that if you're a basketball cl- player, you have a chance to live a life w- without violence. That you know, many of the gang members just assume that they're going to have a foreshortened future, right, that, that they're going to die young. But I think because the larger culture sort of encourages black men to play basketball and sort of mirrors back to them that it's possible for them to gain access to opportunities outside of the inner city if they play basketball. And I think even the gang members feel that way. And so they say, you know, if they see a ball player who's very skilled, they put all of their hope into that person. They say, you know, I can't make it out. I'm I'm a gang member. I'll probably die young or go to prison. But I don't want you to follow that path because you have a set of skills that will give you access to mainstream culture. And So they really set them apart. They become sacred. They become sort of symbols of hope. Um, and in some cases, they're thought of as saviors of the, of the community, that potentially if they get out, you know, they can bring others with them.
0: When you talk about the larger culture encouraging black men to play basketball, can you yes. describe that larger culture?
1: Yeah, so, you know, one of the myths that was forged in slavery racial myth, really, is that black men and women are sound in body, but not in intellect. In other words, that they're not really human beings as they were sort of animals in human form, right, or sort of primitive or underdeveloped human beings. So they could be very strong physically. But didn't have the intellectual capacity um, that you know white Americans have, and that myth has shaped American society and um, our institutions, um, and also attitudes towards people of African descent, particularly black men. And so I think one of the reasons why the larger culture assigns the role of athlete to black men is because the culture assumes that they are naturally gifted physically, right? And so, yes, you know, um, they can play sports better than anybody, right? Um, but not necessarily do well in school. So I think that that stereotype, um, certainly influences people's perceptions and attitudes towards African-American men as naturally gifted athletes, but it also informs African-American males' perspectives on themselves, right? They, they, They internalize that in many cases. So I would never argue that sports doesn't do harm Right, to people of African descent or African-American males. Right, but, but I also argue at the same time, it is a space of resistance, a space of freedom. Right? So, you know, there are really these two things happening simultaneously.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Onaje Woodbine, the author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip Hop, and Street Basketball. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Um, Onajay Woodbine, your experience on the basketball court, uh, your skill, uh, your relationship with your father, your personal intellect, took you to Yale University, uh, where you began as a basketball player. Can you share with us that experience and how it ended where you went after the end of your uh, experience on the court at at Yale?
1: Yeah, so when I arrived at Yale, as you say, you know, my mindset was that I, I was a basketball player. But at the same time, I valued my inner life in part because of both my mother's pushing of education in the house and my, father's, my father and I's relationship and his pointing to my inner life as being very important. Uh, when I got to Yale and I began to play on the basketball team, I immediately was one of the best players. Even as a freshman, I started and was one of the leading scorers on the team. But there was a huge cultural divide. On the one hand, we were supposed to be a, a united team, but we had many players you know, who were white, who were in a fraternity, and the black players weren't a part of it. Um, and then on the basketball court, I think often they mistook my passion for showboating, uh, many of the white players. And so there was, there was a distance there. There was a, a racial tension there. Um, there, were, there were also things that I noticed around um, mistreatment of women and misogyny, especially a, a culture, really, in the locker room uh, of misogyny um, that disturbed me. And all of those things really shocked me because coming from the inner city, and going to Yale, I I thought that at the, one of the best schools in the world that, you know, people would be sort of more enlightened around these issues. Um, but that, that just wasn't the case.
0: Your experience on the street basketball courts of uh, Massachusetts, of, of yeah. Boston, um, sounds to me like it's very different than your experience on the Yale basketball court.
1: Very different, very, very different, um, you know, and that that surprised me. Maybe I was naive. I probably was naive, um, but it did surprise me, you know. At in in Roxbury, you put everything on the court, you know. I mean, you know, you played ball in Roxbury. It was like life or death. You know, if you if you if you didn't play well. Then you might have to join a gang. You know, you might you be subject to the streets. And you know, we put so much into it, and it was so much love and passion expressed out there. You know, it, again, it was a way of life. Um, and yet, when I brought that to Yale, I brought that same passion. I, you know, I would dance on the court. I would scream on the court. I would talk trash on. The and my teammates reacted for me which was very strangely you know either they were silent many of them or you know they were secretly holding some sort of animosity towards me um you know or judging me and so the other thing you know i noticed practices were very uh mechanical you know it was you know, there was just no fun. There was no feeling. It was like everything was sort of X's and O's, you know, and was done on a very superficial level. And so that that was one of the huge disappointments, um, I think, about you know transitioning from the culture of Roxbury to the culture of you know predominantly white uh, and elite. University, and you know, by the end of my sophomore year, I was the leading scorer on the team, and I had been voted second team All Ivy League. But I realized that I I wasn't getting a good education by remaining on the basketball team, and I wasn't fulfilling my true purpose. And so I decided to leave the team at the end of my sophomore year and to remain in school just as a student. Um, and I wrote a letter to the Yale Daily News about why that I was leaving the team. And, um, you know, my coaches were pretty upset. One coach in particular, an assistant coach, wrote me a letter that was very racist and basically stated that I had only gotten into Yale because I was an athlete and that I would hurt the chances of um, black people being admitted into Yale by leaving the team. Um, and it was it was a really trying time, but I knew in my heart and in my bones that um, in order to fulfill and become the best person I could be, that I needed to leave the basketball team. And so I did.
0: And the reaction was?
1: The reaction was, on the one hand, students when they read my letter to the daily news were very supportive and, um, and, and my professors were very supportive. Um, but on the other hand, my coaches, um, were very upset. And as I say, didn't really understand, didn't really get to know me, um, as a human being, you know, I think, um, You know, and I don't blame them. They're part of a larger system that treats winning as everything. And their salaries are really dependent upon that. And so what ends up happening is coaches begin to look at players like employees rather than uh, young people that they're meant to shape and form and educate. And so I think that that's how my coaches reacted. It wasn't sort of, trying to help me with a difficult decision, it was rather, you know, I'm, I'm upset um, for basketball reasons, right, that, that, you're, that you're leaving the team. And again, you know, I had a racist response from, from one coach. So I, I, because of their reaction, I knew I had made the right decision, that I, I in fact, was being objectified. I was being treated as a commodity, and um I, I I listened to that to that voice and I was I was glad I did
0: the voice that your father uh, encouraged you to listen to
1: yeah you know my father that's still small voice and you know one of my favorite scholars Howard Thurman uh, who was Martin Luther King's mentor during the civil rights movement um, he always said that no one, determine the quality of your inner life, you know, that that is your, your locus, your space of resistance, you know, so despite the existence of racism and um, all of these exploitative systems that we walk and live in every day, that there's something within you that no one can take away. And, And that, that has carried me through. Um, and it's been a, a liberating. It's been liberating to be aware of that in the midst of, you know, all of the gender and racial and economic forces that try to determine, you know, an individual's life.
0: At the Phillips Academy, where you teach uh, in Andover, Massachusetts, uh, yes. your book has been uh, adapted into a play. Yeah. And you asked the question, what does it mean to be a black face in a white place? Yeah. How do you answer that?
1: You know, that's a powerful question. Um, for me, what it means is finding opportunities to get beneath the surface. And theater provides that, you know. Theater, like basketball, is another ritual space where people can try on roles and express the emotion in a way that shows something human, right, that we all share in common. And so for me, being at Phillips Academy is about creating and finding those opportunities and spaces where we can let go of the mask that we wear right, and discover what we all share in common.
0: Does it work? Are you able to do that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think there are those moments of transcendence um, in the classroom um, and in the theater. You know, what was powerful about this project for me and the play itself was that If you go deep enough within, this is what I discovered, that if you go deep enough within yourself and you find this still, small voice that we're calling or this other, some people might call it spirit, that you can actually come out on the other side and see it in somebody else. In other words, the distinctions between us that we carry with us on our everyday life are in some ways illusions. The the other in me is the other in you, and we share that in common.
0: This has been the first of two visits with Onaje Woodbine, author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. Listen for us next week for part two. The book Onaje Woodbine recommends is Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman This interview was recorded on August 13, 2016 Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website RadioCurious.org The email is Curious at RadioCurious.org The phone is 707 462 Four, 1. Christina Anested and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.